Okay. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2. So I invite you to turn there in whatever copy of God's Word you have. And the whole chapter is one narrative, but for the sake of time, this week we're going to read just through uh, the end of verse uh, 24 for this week. So, and then next week we will actually read the whole thing uh, in preparation for understanding that. So, uh, this week, Daniel chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know this dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation of the dream. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretations, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Then the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The, king, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and he told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked for you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said to him thus, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. 
So this is as far as we're going to get this week. Um, and then next week we will conclude the rest of this narrative. But uh, if you want to, let's say, have one central idea or one central theme that we're going to try to focus on uh, in the first half of this chapter, uh, it is uh, the basic limitations that you see uh, in Nebuchadnezzar and his, uh, his humanity. Uh, he has a basic limitation, a basic anxiousness that that causes, and that leads to kind of the rest of the drama that unfolds in the chapter. So if we're, uh, let's say, zooming out first to ask the question, okay, how does last week inform this week? Uh, remember last week we kind of get the summary statement of Daniel, verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's verse 21 of chapter 1. So whatever drama is going to unfold in the rest of the book of Daniel, we kind of have a sneak preview as readers that Daniel is not going to die, okay? It's kind of like knowing that your main character in the story uh, of, of your movie or your uh, book is he's, he's there in the end, he's got a flashback, and then the rest of the movie kind of takes place in that time, right? So we know Daniel's not going to die. So whatever other drama is going to unfold kind of has this looming confirmation ahead of time for the reader. Daniel's going to be okay. Daniel's going to make it, right? He, they told us that, chapter 1, verse 21. So as we're reading in the text and we find out that Daniel gets included with the wise men group, that's our first clue that whatever else is going to unfold, however else is going to work out, remember, Daniel's going to hang on. He's actually going to outlast Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to make it. So we don't know exactly how that's always going to unfold, but uh, we kind of have that affirmation as readers. So that's the first thing to, to keep in mind, right? There's not a real looming threat of Daniel dying because we've already been told he's going to make it. And now, uh, the second thing that might be, let's say, troublesome to us, uh, if, you, if you're reading the text closely, verse 1, uh, the third word, is a problem. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you uh, were doing a little bit of quick math uh, from last week, uh, last week, chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar sacks uh, Jerusalem, he drags off the exiles, and immediately starts them in, into a training camp. And that training camp lasts three years. So if Nebuchadnezzar has been ruling for three years, then they graduate. And then after that time is when these uh, wise men and Daniel are, and his, his comrades are included with the wise men. That provides a, a bit of a problem, right? Three years of their training, and this all happens in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So that's what we would call a textual problem, right? It presents a apparent contradiction in the text where Daniel and his, his men could not have been part of the wise men group because they're still in their, their training process, right? Well, uh, I just want to give you a, a quick resolve on that. Uh, if you want to read more on that, one of the commentaries that I recommended, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, he actually talks about this more at length. But the way that the Hebrews would keep their calendar and the Babylonians would keep their calendar of kingship is actually different. So when the Hebrews would discuss the, the reign of a king, they would talk about the ascension year, meaning the, the calendar year in which the king came to power counts as the first year of their reign. For the Babylonians and other, other uh, Near Eastern groups, the first year of the king's reign, their ascension year, actually doesn't count. It's the first full year of their reign that counts as their year. So Nebuchadnezzar is in the second year, second full year of his reign, which is probably right at the tail end, right after they've graduated from their training program. So the three years could have elapsed like academic years, where they're kind of at the tail end of the calendar year and they've just graduated from their program. And so they're freshly minted wise men, now ready to be slaughtered with the, with the, rest, of the, uh, with the rest of them. So I just wanna give you that heads up as you, uh, as you read that. Uh, there's not actually a textual problem there, it's pretty easily resolved. So with that out of the way, let's get to the main thrust of the text. So the drama unfolds. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Uh, the dream vexes him to the point where he can no longer sleep. And this would not be a problem for anyone else except that Nebuchadnezzar is the all-powerful king of Babylon, right? So now, because it's his problem, it's everyone else in Babylon's problem as well. 
this is not uh, like us. If we have a dream that perplexes us, we can't summon a whole empire and summon a whole uh, uh, army of resources to, to our beck and call. But Nebuchadnezzar can, and, and he uses, uh, it seems like, every last resource that he has access to. It says he summons not only the magicians, but also the enchanters, also the sorcerers, and also this unique group of people called the Chaldeans, which no one's really sure what's different between the Chaldeans and the other groups, other than to say this whole army of people is probably all representing of the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding that Babylon has of the world, right? So it's their theologians, it's their astrologers, it's their scientists, it's everyone who's, who's smart in Babylon. He calls them all together and he says, I have a dream and this dream is something I can't understand and I would like you to give me the interpretation of the dream. Now notice in that he doesn't tell them what the dream is um, and this becomes kind of the tension point for the wise men of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar because they insist, if he simply told them what the dream was, then they would tell him what the dream meant. And you might understand why Nebuchadnezzar has a problem with this, because he's suspicious, as most rulers are, that the people who are talking to them are not forthcoming with information. And in fact, in, in verse 9, uh, he says, um, you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. So he thinks that if he tells them the dream, they're just going to tell him either whatever he wants to hear, or they're going to tell him something that may or may not be true. So he says, the way I will know that what you're telling me is true is if you can do something supernatural, which is tell me the dream ahead of time. Now, the wise men actually make it clear to Nebuchadnezzar that this is actually not even in keeping with their religious system, right? In their own uh, doctrine of the, the pantheon of the gods, uh, verse 11, uh, they say that the thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show the king except the gods, and the gods are, are not with us. So they're saying even within our theological system, this is not possible. So if you believe what we believe about gods, then what you're asking is still impossible for us. It doesn't matter how many wise men you appoint, the gods don't reveal these kinds of things to humans. So Nebuchadnezzar is pressing on something that is kind of a fixed limitation in their, in their pagan system of worship, right? Even so, he's kind of making these unreasonable demands. And what you're seeing in this is, is rulers being unreasonable uh, because for the, probably the first time in their, uh, in their reign, in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, right, this is the second full calendar year of his reign, he's bumping into a problem. Uh, and as, as becomes clear, that problem is actually related to does the throne actually stay with Nebuchadnezzar or not, right? He knows the dream. He's dreamt the dream. And he has a sneaking suspicion that it doesn't mean something good for him. And so he, he wants to understand what this is and maybe how can he avoid it or how can he understand it to maybe mitigate it. Uh, in the ancient Near East, uh, a, a real strong example of this happens actually at the end of the book of Genesis, right? Genesis 41. Uh, Joseph is sitting in jail, rotting in the Egyptian prison. And then Pharaoh has a dream and Pharaoh doesn't know what his dream is. No one can tell him his dream. And so Pharaoh does what? Goes searching through all the land. And remember, Pharaoh's uh, cupbearer comes to him and says, hey, by the way, there was this Israelite in the prison that I was in just, just a while ago, and he can tell you the dream. And that actually for Pharaoh is uh, a way for him to prepare ahead of time for the famine, right? So the dream to Pharaoh was a foresight or an intuition into the future. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream is much the same. Uh, for both of the rulers, it vexes them because they know that they either need to act in accord with the dream or they need to uh, deal with whatever the dream tells them. They have this a theological understanding that dreams actually tell them the future. Not every dream, but the ones that vex them particularly, they had a sense of that. And so Nebuchadnezzar thinks this, uh, his, his wise men cannot deliver for him. And so, uh, and, and in fact, they say there's not a man on earth who can meet such a demand from the king. 
And this, I think, let's say, as a, as a first point of reflection, can tell us a lot about the difference between the Babylonians' pagan system of worship and uh, the God that we would serve as Christians, right? Uh, Daniel and his friends uh, don't say, uh, when, they, when they hear about the king's dream, they don't say, oh, God's dwelling is not with man, he's unapproachable, you know, we can't ask him, it's not possible for us to know. Actually, they approach him boldly in prayer uh, to go find out what the meaning of this dream is, so maybe some of them could be saved, right? Uh, in Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 6, uh, Paul will say, don't be anxious about anything, but rather, in everything, through prayer and supplication, uh, allow your request to be brought forth to God. Right? So we're even told and, and invited many times by both Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and many other places in the New Testament to actually approach God in prayer, to seek understanding, to seek wisdom, to seek insight, to seek discernment. The Babylonians say about their gods, and these are the wise men, the theologians of Babylon, saying, the gods don't deal with us, they don't dwell with us, they don't reveal things to us. So you can ask the question, well, what really good is it to serve gods like that? But nevertheless, this is their religious system kind of butting up against reality, right? It has, it has many shortcomings. And then uh, we can turn kind of to Daniel's involvement in this drama. So Nebuchadnezzar has this basic limitation. Uh, it causes anxiousness. It causes mistrust of, of the people around him. Um, and he's, he's right not to trust these wise men. And then uh, we come to, to Daniel. And uh, something interesting happens when, when Daniel gets involved. Uh, when the wise men approach Nebuchadnezzar, they ask for time. They ask for an extension. Nebuchadnezzar does not give them the extension. He says, either you tell me or you die. You'll be torn limb from limb. The word is fixed. When Daniel approaches Nebuchadnezzar, he actually gets the extension to go pray. It's kind of an interesting thing, right? Uh, verse uh, 16, Daniel went in, requested to the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel, um, either through favor with God, uh, which get, grants him favor with Nebuchadnezzar, is granted this extra allotment of time to go seek the Lord in prayer, right? Uh, which is interesting because Daniel's part of the wise men class. So technically, the word from Nebuchadnezzar, which was fixed, is now being extended, not because of the wise men that were in the room at the first instance, but Daniel coming first to the king is able to grant this additional extension, right? This is the favor of God residing on Daniel, which we already saw in chapter one. And then uh, we, we kind of turn to the, the prayer of Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And you see this prayer uh, kind of revealed uh, heavily in verse uh, um, uh, 18, right? Uh, they, they go to pray. Uh, they seek the mercy of God from heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And verse 19 is really short. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And it doesn't tell us the dream. It doesn't tell us the interpretation of the dream. It doesn't tell us what was revealed. And then immediately the text, let's say the bulk of the text, actually dwells on praising God. It's kind of an interesting note about the prayer of Daniel and his com companions. So the, the text is, let's say, emphasizing things, right? The first thing the text emphasizes about the prayer, verse 18, is that the prayer is couched in them seeking the mercy of God. They're seeking God for mercy. Uh, they're seeking God's grace. They're seeking his, um, his gift to be bestowed to them. They know they don't earn this, right? So they seek God with a certain posture of humility. But it also is a certain kind of confidence that they seek God with because they're, they have some assurance that the prayer is going to be answered, at least in some way, right? They're not panicking like the Babylonian wise men and bartering for time. And then they, they seek God concerning the mystery. When the mystery is answered for them, and then notice what they do, uh, they go to worship the God of heaven. Verse 19 says, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And then the whole prayer, if you look at it, is kind of a reflection on God's sovereignty, God's foreknowledge, God's, uh, God's character, really. It's a, it's a large reflection prayer on that. So Daniel uh, says these words, verse 20, and I'm quoting starting in the prayer. 
Uh, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Now, we, might, we talked about this earlier. Uh, Daniel doesn't have a Hebrew text in front of him. He doesn't have a copy of God's word. How does Daniel know to pray, how to pray, or to pray even like this, right? This could have been taken straight out of a psalm somewhere, right? How does Daniel know this? This is, this is in his blood, right? After three years of, of brainwashing and, and learning under the Babylonian rulers, he still has the, the guts of scripture in him, where when he goes to pray, him and his companions, they, they quote scripture, right? They're, they're quoting uh, God blessed forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. Uh, then notice this, he changes times and seasons, right? That sounds like a Psalm right there. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. This, this is a, a very scripture saturated prayer, right? This is drawing from the wisdom of the text of scripture. And then verse 22 is a very interesting text. It says he reveals deep and hidden things. And then it pivots and it says, and he knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells within him. So verse 22 is interesting because it tells us two things theologically. One, uh, what the pagan deities know um, and don't reveal, right? The, the pagan, uh, the Babylonians would believe that their gods knew things in the future, but they don't reveal them to men. Daniel says, God, our God, reveals these things, deep and hidden things. And then he says something else, that he knows what is in the darkness. So the things that he doesn't reveal, the things that he keeps shrouded, it's not that he doesn't reveal them because he doesn't know them. He doesn't reveal them because he doesn't want to. He, he keeps some things away from humans to see. Job even reflects on this when he's talking with God and he says, there are things that are beyond me, things that I do not know, and I speak out of turn when I, when I think of such things. Right? There are things that God knows and there are things that God reveals. And the things that he reveals to us, we, we bless him and we thank him for. But there are things that he knows that he's not obligated to tell us or things that he doesn't know and that's why he doesn't tell us, right? Uh, and there's, that really is a huge problem for us today because we say things like, well, if God knew that thing or if God loved me, surely I would know the insight into this problem, this suffering, this pain. Uh, there are things that he knows in darkness uh, that he does not necessarily reveal to us. And then uh, the, the text kind of concludes verse 23. Um, Daniel says, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and you have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Now, if you're, if you're thinking about Daniel and his situation in Babylon, and you're just putting yourself in the shoes of Daniel and asking yourself the question, what would it take for your faith to not be broken by being dragged off in exile by a foreign army, brainwashed, cultured, taught a different language, taught a different religion, and grafted into this other culture? And when Daniel prays, he prays and he thanks God, he doesn't pray out of bitterness, if this is a guy who's like been through the ringer in terms of trauma and suffering and, and all kinds of mistreatment in his life, and he, when he talks to God, he, he gives thanks to him, he praises God, and he connects it, not just to some arbitrary God that he's constructed, he connects it to the ancient God of Israel, the God of my fathers. So he's attributing these things to God, and he's focusing really on the goodness and the character of God in this prayer. And then kind of with a note of confidence, the text includes that he goes to uh, Arioch, who's kind of the chief uh, of the guard or the chief executioner. He goes to him and he tells Arioch, bring me before the king, I will tell him the interpretation of his dream. And that's where we're going to have to, let's say, pause on the, the exposition of this text. But if we're asking questions about, let's say, what is the significance of the text for us? Uh, how do we, let's say, put this on the ground in our day? Um, well, the problem of Nebuchadnezzar is not a problem that is unique to him. In fact, uh, if you read much of world history, you'll notice that Nebuchadnezzar, as, a, as an authoritarian dictator ruler, does not act out of step with others in his class, right? Um, 
There are certain things that they can't do, even if they're all powerful and they command a whole country. And those things tend to frustrate rulers more than anything else. Nebuchadnezzar can't know the dream. This frustrates him. This causes much vexation for him. It's, uh, it, and this kind of thing tends to happen with rulers. It's almost uh, like the time uh, when Mary, Queen of Scots, cannot get John Knox to stop talking and, and spreading the gospel. And she's got a problem with this. She, she commands all the armies of Scotland. She commands all the forces of the Roman Catholic Empire. But she cannot get John Knox to stop preaching the gospel. This is a problem for her. It vexes her her whole reign, right? This is, this is something that happens to powerful rulers. There are certain things that are beyond the scope of their control, no matter how powerful. Even, even in our day, uh, you think about someone who commands money and power and respect, like, like a Steve Jobs. Um, that could not prevent cancer from ravaging his body. There are certain things that are outside of the control of powerful people with great understanding. There are certain things that are just beyond the scope. They're basic limitations that all humans have. No matter how powerful we are, no matter how much we rule, no matter how sovereignly we think we rule or how powerful we are, there's this basic insecurity. And that's not unique to rulers. That actually is something that all humans have, have this insecurity about, right? If there's something that you have uh, that, you, that you love, uh, you might, from time to time, face insecurity about the loss of that thing. Maybe it's a relationship or a job or a certain financial status or whatever. Whatever we have, these are things that we sometimes lose sleep over. They're things that we think a lot about. And much of that is outside of our control. And, and even beyond this, if there's things that we want that we don't have, uh, we sometimes have insecurity or anxiousness about those kinds of things as well. The difference with Nebuchadnezzar is there's basically nothing that he doesn't have access to. So he doesn't have that kind of anxiousness, but he has much anxiousness about keeping his kingdom. He has much anxiousness about the, the prospect that there's something unknown looming in the future that he doesn't understand. That causes him sleepless nights. So uh, there, that's one piece of, uh, of thing that we could, let's say, reflect on in the text. The, the problem that Nebuchadnezzar exposes, that's really a human problem, that basic limitation. And then the other thing that we can, let's say, see in the text is particularly the response of Daniel and his, his, his friends. Um, let's say their, their confidence, their boldness to approach God in prayer and how unlike the wise men and the pagans they are, right? The pagans are frantic. They're bartering. They're trying to buy additional time. Daniel, when he hears of the death sentence, the death sentence is basically already on the wise men. And he goes, let me talk to the king. I'll go talk to the king. I'll get an extension and we'll pray. There's just a certain kind of confidence that Daniel has. Almost like he knows that God's sovereign and whatever happens, good or bad to him, is going to go whatever way God wants it to go. So there's a certain trust, a certain security, a certain amount of entrustment that he, he has with God. It's kind of like Jesus when he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look, look around you. Don't be anxious about things because even the birds, even, they, don't, they don't gather food, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Even the lilies, they don't, they don't last very long, but they're clothed in splendor and glory. So don't worry about things on this world because God who loves you will take care of you. It's kind of like that in the book of Daniel, right? Daniel has a certain confidence in the midst of this storm that he's going to be just fine. And I think there's much that we can learn from that. This is a mature faith walking itself out in trial and, and frustration. And it doesn't lead to despair. It doesn't lead to uh, doubt in his faith. It actually leads to him kind of just stepping into the system of going to prayer for things that he doesn't understand, going to community to pray for things that he doesn't really quite get, and in all things, praising God, blessing God, and, and reflecting on the character of God almost as an anchor point for him. And we'll see then next week in our time, uh, what is this dream that was revealed to him, and really what does that kind of hold for the future? Because one thing becomes clear in, in the second half of this text, which is that 
while the pagan gods who don't dwell with man don't reveal things to their, their uh, servants, a God in heaven does reveal things to his servants and his predictions are very, very accurate. That's why we have prophecy. That's why we know things in the future predicted thousands of years before their time. So with that, uh, let me just close in prayer and then we can move to some discussion. So, uh, Father, we thank you that uh, there is a God in heaven uh, who does not distance himself from humanity but actually um, seeks to reveal himself and make himself known to us. Father, we thank you that you are a good God and that your goodness is marked by so many things, but um, one of them, as we see here in the text tonight, is just your, your desire to, to make things known to your people, to provide comfort, to provide assurance. Um, you are the great uh, and sovereign Lord who watches over your people tenderly, uh, leading them by the hand, um, even in all the things that kind of go on around us that we might not understand or even never understand uh, in this life, Lord. Um, we can have a certain trust, a certain assurance that you are still in control, you are still sovereign over things, uh, and that nothing that uh, befalls us or assaults us is outside of your uh, control, inside of your, outside of your hand. And well, Lord, we thank you for that because that is just a good promise that we have from you, firmly established in your word uh, and backed up by your character. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray this in your name. Amen.